Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to us today. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter, uh, one of the account directors from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And today we're going to be talking probiotics with Dr. Joanna McMillan. Now, probiotics have really become increasingly popular over probably the last 10, 20 years as a result of the expanding scientific evidence um, showing their beneficial effects on human health. This has really seen probiotics becoming incorporated into a variety of products and often fermented dairy foods. So really, what does the latest evidence say when it comes to probiotics and their benefits for our digestive health? This month being February is Gut Health Month when we're really looking at common, common gut problems and nutrition interventions that can help our patients and clients feel better. In our podcast today with Joanna McMillan, we're going to look at the latest research when it comes to digestive health and those interventions. And we'll specifically take a deep dive into what the research is telling us about probiotics and why do we need to identify them down to the strain level? How much do we need to eat to see a benefit for our gut? And is there a difference in the health benefits um, when we consume a probiotic in a fermented food compared to a supplement? Now, Dr. Joanna McMillan, as I'm sure you all know, is a PhD qualified nutrition scientist and an APD and is one of Australia's most trusted health and wellbeing experts. Joanna is an adjunct senior research fellow with La Trobe University and a fellow of the Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. She's the founder of Get Lean, an online lifestyle change program, and has authored seven books, including her latest called Brain Food. She's a proud ambassador for Diabetes Australia, Skin Health Institute, and Food Bank. And today's podcast is supported by Activia. And just a disclaimer that this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to your individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only, and we advise you to exercise your own judgment before deciding to use any of the information we provide. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. So welcome to the podcast today, Joanna, or maybe I should say welcome back to a Dietitian Connection podcast. Thank you, Jane. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> so you were involved in the TV program, The Gut Revolution on ABC, and that was around five years ago now. Um, can you tell me sort of the, the response you got from viewers after that program? Yeah, well, look, that was, I mean, that was really the start of me kind of immersing myself into this area of, of gut health. And, um, you know, I couldn't believe when you told me that it was five years ago. <laughs> and that what that show really highlighted to me was, one, I had the opportunity working on the show to be able to speak to researchers in gut health 
um, all around the world. And actually what was interesting was not just dietitians and nutrition related science people, um, but also, you know, microbiologists and, and um, you know, people who are interested in the brain effects, people who are interested in, in uh, the sort of trauma and stress effects. So what's interesting about gut health is it really has pulled in so many different areas of science. Um, and so following the show, I was just overwhelmed with how many people got in touch with me through my health email, looking for help. I mean, literally hundreds of people who would send in their medical records and describe <laughs> their symptoms. And often, I mean, often it was quite heartbreaking because for some of them, it had been years and years and years of suffering, trying to see different experts, trying different solutions. Some of them, including one of my participants on the show, you know, who ended up with such a restricted diet um, that she was not getting her nutrition. And that's what I see all the time with, with the public is that they end up cutting out this, cutting out that, not understanding what the implications are to their overall diet, ending up being very fearful actually of food and unwittingly and probably making their gut problems worse because of the types of diets that they're following. So I guess in the five years since, that's what it really highlighted to me was that one, there's not enough really good information out there. And I think that's why the Gut Health Month that Dietitian um, Connection has, has organized is so important because it's starting to give people that really good information understand what is evidence-based information compared to the nonsense that's out there. Um, and then and understanding where to go for help and who to see for help and, and really sort of starting to get that sort of pathway to move forward. Yeah, and I think we've seen that at Dietitian Connection, which is what I guess triggered Gut Health Month, was from the dietitians who we work with. And anytime we run any kind of educational professional development, which has gut health as the topic in the title is mentioned, we get an enormous amount of interest there. So it's not just the, the consumers, it's the dietitians and the practitioners that are the same. Yeah. But we hear the term gut health bandied about a lot. Um, and so how do you actually define what gut health is? Yeah, well, I think um, that's a really important point. And, and look, I'm pleased that dietitians are so in involved and interested in the area because we should be, because gut health is so, um, it's so wrapped up in terms of diet and lifestyle that exactly the sorts of things that we should be talking about. But what's important to point out is that, yes, there's the obvious thing of gut health. So someone's got inflammatory bowel disease or they've got irritable bowel disease and they've got very obvious symptoms of poor gut health. But it shouldn't simply be the absence of those symptoms that gives us gut health. What we know now is that people can have, you know, things going on with their microbiome, for example, not being in its optimal healthy state. That can be impacting their, you know, it can be impacting mood disorders. We know that there's that gut brain axis. It can be influencing their immune health. So we're all sort of obsessed at the moment with respiratory health. Well, we know that the gut microbiome has an influence there. Um, so there's all sorts of things. So yes, there's the obvious digestive complaints like people who get bloated, they get abdominal distension. Perhaps there's altered bowel habits like diarrhea or constipation. Um, perhaps there's just, you know, not, people don't understand what's a sort of normal level of gas production if you're excessively burping or excessively farting or, you know, <laughs> these sorts of things that people are a noisy gut. People don't understand sometimes what are normal symptoms and what are, what are not. And clearly when those things become problematic to someone's day-to-day -day life, then those are obvious signs of gut health. But it can be all those other things too like immune response, like brain activity. And in fact, we talk a lot about the gut-brain axis, but we actually now know there's a gut-heart axis, a gut-kidney, gut-liver. So, you know, often I say gut health is really, it's at the core of our body and it is central to both physical and mental health. It's really quite extraordinary. You know, I did, um, I, I sort of added to the research I'd done on, on the ABC Catalyst show 
um, by writing an audible book called Gut Full. And, and, and in that, I try to describe that sort of process from digestion um, and even the ability to get the nutrients out of your food and for your gut to be working correctly. That's part of gut health. But then that knock-on effect of what's going on in your gut to literally every other aspect of your body. Yeah, it's it's quite a shift in thinking, isn't it? I mean, from yeah. just a digestive function to like a core function in in overall health and well being. Um, right. So, when, yeah, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, when I I mean, and when I first studied as a dietitian, you know, sort of, yeah, I hate to think how long ago it is now, almost twenty five or so years ago. You know, that really was when we studied gut health. It really was just about digestion, absorption of nutrients, and and bowel habits. We really didn't understand that sort of global um, body effect that, that what's going on in your gut can have. So, you know, I do think it's this sort of latest science and particularly the ability now for us to be able to actually measure someone's gut microbiome, that we're, we're at that sort of proverbial tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding how we can influence it and how we can when actually start to mitigate some of the, the, the effects that are going on in the gut. Yeah, well, I think when I studied, I don't think microbiome was actually a word that existed um, <laughs> in a practical sense. So um, things have moved along. Um, but in terms of just those, the, the specifically gut symptoms, are they quite common, those sorts of digestive discomfort symptoms? Yeah, well, you know, it's really hard to get accurate figures and I see different figures. But one of the most recent estimates was that at least half of us have some sort of gut problem some of the time. And and so there's certainly that, you know, a sort of smaller percentage of people who, you know, certainly I think one in seven have more serious kind of uh, chronic ongoing gut problems. Um, but certainly half of us, I mean, all of us, I'm sure, have experienced bloating or, um, you know, or have been constipated or have had loose bowels at one point or another. And often you can put your finger on what the problem is um, and know what to do. Or that particular thing upsets me or, you know, I know if I have too much wine, that upsets my gut or, you know, simply eating too much. Often if you don't eat and then you have a really big meal, you feel bloated. So I think most of us can relate to what the problems are, but where those problems become chronic, where they are starting to, and you just, when we all know how you feel when your gut is feeling bad, imagine feeling like that on most days, being fearful of eating because you know, you know how it's going to feel afterwards. Um, not being able to wear the clothes that you want to wear because you get such bad abdominal distension after um, eating particular foods and sometimes not being able to identify what it is that is suddenly causing that abdominal distension. So I think that's what's really important here is that it clocks into general well-being. It clocks into, um, you know, uh, can you imagine just having that sort of fear? The people who described to me, I'm scared to go out because I know I need to be near a bathroom. Or, you know, I, I'm scared to go to a party because I'm unsure about how my gut is going to behave. So then it starts really, behave, uh, you know, interfering with everyday life and interfering with your mental health. Yeah, that, that's a huge impact on quality of life is being afraid to go out because of what you might eat. or And it's not even necessarily what you eat, is it? It might be a leftover effect from what you've had before you go. Um, exactly. And so it's really difficult. So in terms of the research about, about gut health, where do you think, and I know this is, it's a broad question, but where do you think we are at the moment in terms of knowing um, the definites about gut health? You know, there's a lot of, mm. I guess, hypothesized effects and um, the, the gut interacting with other things. But what do we actually mm. know about gut health now and the research? Well, we've now got some really good, solid research behind things like prebiotics, behind probiotics, which is something we're going to talk more about today, um, and about the influences of not just diet, but overall lifestyle. 
Um, so, you know, for dietitians, we now know the, the key aspects of diet. So, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is, of course, you know, I'm sure since you were first studying as a dietitian too, we've always talked about fiber. But now we should be talking about fibers, plural. So we're starting to understand that fiber is not one entity. It's literally hundreds of different compounds that are present in plant foods and they have different effects. So we then know that certain types of foods can have different effects on the gut. But we also know if giving fiber supplements, specific types of fiber supplements are what are required for different kinds of health outcomes. Now, we also now know the exciting new area is understanding the impact of polyphenols. So we've actually got this discussion going on in research to suggest that polyphenols um, should be classified as prebiotics. So this will be the first sort of group of compounds that are not fibers that can potentially be classed as prebiotics. And that's because they alter aspects of the gut microbiome. And then we've got the whole enormous area of probiotics. And I know a lot of dietitians are still at the moment saying, oh, I don't know what to do about probiotics. How do you know which one to use? How do you know whether to have them in foods or whether to have them? It's sort of been, the word is being bandaged around an awful lot. And I do think over the coming years, we're going to understand more and more and more about probiotics. Um, but we just have to, to recognize that there is there are already literally thousands of, of papers on probiotics. There have been hundreds of clinical trials. So there is information out there. Um, and it's for dietitians, we really need to try and get across that research so that we can be giving the best advice and stay abreast of it because this really is a hot topic. And yeah. it's an emerging area that I think will, will change the more we understand about how individual probiotics, individual strains interact with our own unique gut microbiomes. And so if we move then on to looking at probiotics a bit more closely, and, and you just mentioned um, the different strains, and there does seem to be a lot of focus on particular strains and strain names, and none of them really roll off the tongue easily. So you can understand <laughs> no, why consumers <laughs> yeah, um, get confused about all of this. But why is it important to know about the strains? Well, that's, you know, in the same way that I, I guess a good analogy is to, is to think, as I just said about fibres, we've now understand that there's a whole load of different types of fibres that can have different effects. It's even more so when we think of the, the huge numbers of different kind of strains of bacteria, and not just bacteria, but other microbes too, that we know when we look at the research that different strains can have very different effects in the body. So it's important that we don't just lump all probiotics together. And one point actually I want to make is that not all live bacteria, whether they're in foods or, you know, are naturally there or added into foods, they're not all probiotics. So I think that's already a consumer misunderstanding that they think that all live bacteria are, are probiotics. And I don't think we've got very tight regulation of what goes on food labels and drinks labels at the moment. So we have, you know, every single, you know, all sorts of different products claiming to have probiotics. But to actually technically um, be defined as a probiotic, it has to be a yes, live in sufficient numbers, but be proven to have a benefit to the host. So that's what's absolutely key. So, you know, yogurts are a good example just because, you know, live bacteria used in the making of yogurt, it's a fermented food. And the same is true of other fermented foods and drinks. But unless that strain of bacteria or strains of bacteria in the product have been shown to be of benefit, we can't call them a probiotic. It doesn't mean these other things don't have other kinds of benefits. There's all sorts of things that might be going on there. But it's really important that we look at that definition. And then as dietitians, if we're advising our clients to what to eat or whether they need a supplement or not, it's important that we're across the research about those individual strains. So, you know, I always look, if I'm going to use a supplement, I would look at the supplements research, look at what they've got published, look at the trials that have been done and pick one that is, you know, whether it's to 
help prevent diarrhea with antibiotic use or with traveling, um, whether it's one that's been proven to help with IBS, whether it's been one to proven um, to help with constipation or with loose stools. You know, that's what you want to look for so that you know you're giving, giving the, right, um, the right strain and one that is present in a format that is actually going to have an impact on gut health. Yeah, and that's probably a really basic um, message that we can convey to consumers, which they may not be aware of, is that point that a probiotic has a health benefit. It's not yes. just a bug. It has a health benefit. And, and I'm sure a lot of consumers don't appreciate that difference. And, and even if we can convey that as a starting point, it opens the door to them to look for the, the additional information um, on the strains. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's also important that we understand there can be benefits for people who don't have those, you know, those gut discomfort um, uh, symptoms, you know, simply for boosting our immune health, which, of course, has been another hot topic during the pandemic. Um, we know that there's that sort of great research. So, you know, helping consumers to really understand how even if I feel like I have really great gut health and I don't have any issues, in fact, consuming things like fermented foods um, uh, or possibly taking a probiotic supplement, these kinds of things can still assist us with other areas of our health and maintaining good health. So it, I guess it kind of comes down to that sort of what's, what is optimal health? Is it simply the absence of disease? Well, I think most dietitians would clearly not define good health as that. It is about, you know, having clarity of thought, having a well-functioning body, um, you know, uh, having a good, strong immune system, et cetera, et cetera. So it is about that kind of idea of shifting our thought processes away from just dealing with ill health. And in this case, you know, poor gut health to actually recognizing that broader concept of health. And, and dietitians are used to talking about that because obviously when we talk about healthy eating patterns, we're talking about things that don't necessarily fix something in us. We're just talking about generally good health, you know, a Mediterranean yeah. diet and all those sorts of things. There are benefits there that aren't just curing a problem. So um, so we, we should be used to addressing things in that sort of term. Um, so you mentioned about um, clinical trials and specific strains. Um, can you give us some examples of, of what strains might have been really well um, researched um, and do have um, health benefits? Um, well, yeah, there, there's certainly some good evidence behind the strains that are used. I mean, lactobacillus and, and bifidobacteria, are, there's, and there's a whole lot of different strains of those individual groups. They are often um, the bacterial groups that are used to make yogurt or used in fermented um, yogurts. And what I encourage dietitians to do is to look at what information is online from some of those companies so that you see exactly. And, and because companies who do use good strains and clinically tested strains have their research available and they are funding research. And actually, I feel very strongly about that, that we shouldn't be criticizing research funded by funded by the food industry because they absolutely should be paying for research. And as long as that research is carried out by an independent yeah. third party, these are good studies to look at. So that's what I would be looking um, towards, because even in a category of foods like whether you look at yogurts or whether you're looking at kombucha, or whether you're looking at, at um, uh, kimchi and sauerkraut, you know, these are we can't categorize that entire food group the same. There are some very quality yogurts that have clinically tested good strains of probiotics in them. We have other yogurts that have no live bacteria whatsoever. Um, and there's varying numbers of, of, of live um, microbes in all of these different yogurts. So the same is true of each of those other fermented foods. You know, um, I've done some work in kombucha as well, and we see the same thing. And I get so frustrated when I see kombuchas out there um, advertising that they have probiotics. It's a probiotic drink. 
yet I know it's being, but it's on the ambient temperature sh- shelf in the supermarket. And you know, well, that's not, that can't possibly have live bacteria in it mm. if it's ambient temperature, or I know it's a company's reconstituting that drink. So what I encourage, I think what we all need to do as dietitians is to make sure we're across what products exactly we are recommending. Um, so, you know, yogurt is something we're talking about today, but look at the yogurts, understand what strains are in there, look up, do your research on which are the ones that actually have been tested and then how often do you have to have it? So I think the other really important thing to about understand about probiotics is one, that probiotic has to survive the transit through the gut. And that's a long journey through the very acidic stomach and then the alkaline small intestine, get down to the colon. So it's had this stressful kind of trip. And then when it gets to the colon, it's got to compete with the resident bugs that are already there. And often, you know, it can't find an attachment site. If you just imagine the lining of your gut is just covered in microbes, you know, the new ones can't find their way in, but they can still exert their effects. But what that does mean is that often they're, they're transient sort of visitors through the gut. They are having an effect. They are doing some fermentation. They're producing some of the byproducts of that fermentation in the gut we know to be beneficial, like producing butyrate that helps to keep the colonic cells healthy. We know that they're producing potentially different vitamins and other byproducts that are beneficial to us, but they're transient. And then they pass through the gut because they can't find those attachment sites. So it's really, really key that you keep taking it. You know, Mm. if you just have a probiotic supplement once in a blue moon, or you have a yogurt on the weekend, but you're not having it through the week, then actually you can't expect the probiotic to have its, its effect. So we can't think of these things as being like, a you know, a dose of a vitamin or whatever. You've got to take them regularly. And, and it might take some while, particularly for people who've got, got gut problems. It can take several weeks, actually, for, for, the, for the probiotic, whether it's in food format or whether it's as a supplement, to actually exert its, its effect. So it's our job as dietitians to make sure that we're giving really clear advice about A, the food, what are the strains that we're using, or if we're using a probiotic supplement, and then exactly how to take it. What are the dosage instructions, how much of the food or drink or supplement you need to take? And, and encourage that regularity. Yeah. So um, it's it's not it needs to really become a part of your just your daily routine, whatever how whatever format you've decided to take it in. Um, exactly. It's an ongoing ongoing part of your routine. So you mentioned um, Bifidobacterium um, and Lactobacillus. Do they have? Does the research show? specific health benefits for those ones or is it sort of general digestive health like what are are the health benefits the proven health benefits and again there's there's lots of different papers that that dietitians can can look up including some meta-analyses which then pulls together lots of different studies most of the studies have been done in patients with irritable bowel syndrome or who have altered um, uh, bowel habits like constipation is a common one um, and, and so most of it has been to do with that kind of um, gut symptoms and can these can probiotics in these yogurts fermented in a fermented food have the impact. And so that's what most of the studies are. But there's some other interesting ones, like there was one that showed differences in regions of the brain um, after taking uh, the, the uh, lactobacillus and bifidobacteria in a yogurt format over several weeks. We're seeing difference of the, differences in the brain light up. So that's so those connections are starting to be made. And then I think the other main area that's been looked at is to do with immune health. So looking at reducing respiratory um, infections, um, even reducing all sorts of other different infections in the body and improving immune health overall. 
So those are where the where the research is concentrated. But you can also look for research in, in all sorts of other areas and start to see that popping up. Um, and, and that's where it's important that you then look for the individual strain that's been used in that particular instance. Yeah, it's such an exciting area, isn't it? I mean, it's just amazing yeah. how much more we've got to discover. It's going to be fascinating to watch over the next five or 10 years. For sure. And I think it's helped. I mean, one of the things I've been really worried about with the pandemic is that this sort of, I feel like it's set people back in terms of, you know, we'd all become germaphobes yeah. a little bit with the understanding, um, you know, that that bacteria and other and viruses and other microbes could cause disease. But the fact I always remind people of is that actually about 95%, possibly more than that, of the microbes around us and living in us are not only harmless, they're actually beneficial. And so it's one of my fears of the pandemic is that it's sending us backwards in terms of being those germaphobes. So this kind of understanding of probiotics and of beneficial uh, microbes, beneficial bacteria, I think that's a really positive message to get out there that, yes, there's these pathogens that can make us sick. Um, but it's really important that we use these good bacteria and these good other microbes in order to help arm us, to give us the tools to keep the pathogens at bay. And sorry, you were asking me about the research. That, that's another big area of research is that probiotics have got the potential to help prevent pathogens from having their effect within the gut and within the rest of the body. So I think understanding that this might help that sort of conversation to help people understand that these are really our friends that are living around us. We need them. If we were in a completely germ-free environment, as has been done in some animal models of research, it shows that it impacts our health, it impacts our mental health, it impacts our ability of our body, it impacts our ability of our body to to fight off other infections, but also simply to get our nutrition out of food. So, you know, they really are our friends in digestion, our friends in health. Um, and so we've got to make sure that we look after them. And we're, I guess, really fortunate uh, here that we have such easy access to them. You know, they're in the supermarkets, yeah. they're in the chemists, you know, you can get access to these um, probiotics pretty simply and easily. Um, so to, another question I have is around, we talked about um, strains and how important that is and, and um, how long um, they survive in the gut. What about dose? Is that um, mm. important? What, what do people need to look for in terms of dose? Well, that again depends on the individual strain. It's actually, you know, in the old days, it used to simply be about, and often um, supplements or food products would advertise themselves as having, you know, X number of units and, and, and showing that they're really high numbers of these the microbes. But what we now understand is that it actually is very dependent on the strain and, and the format of that, um, uh, of either of the food or of the supplement itself that helps that strain to survive the, the transit through the gut. So it's not enough. It's not more is not always better is really the answer. You've got to kind of look at what are the dosage instructions with the particular food or supplement that you're using, because some microbes are, are have been proven to be able to survive that transit through the gut. And so therefore, smaller numbers of those are going to have a greater effect than huge numbers of a microbe that we know gets really killed off easily by the gut, uh, by the stomach acid, for example. And not so many of those survive the way through the gut. So you've got to pay attention to what, what is the strain that's been tested, what are the proven outcomes um, in terms of the benefits, and what are the dosage instructions. So, you know, if it's a food, how much do I need to have of the food in order to get the correct dose? Um, how frequently do I need to have it? And usually it's every day. Um, and then, uh, and similarly for a supplement, pay attention to what it says on the, on the pack. Use a reputable company that posts about their individual clinical trials and gives you that correct dosage. 
Yeah, because my understanding is that on labels, if they're talking about probiotics and an associated health benefit, the label actually has to tell you what dosage or what quantity of food will give you the amount exactly. of probiotic to get that health benefit. So it will be on the label um, of anything that you're looking at what the correct dose is. For but sure. you don't need to have five times the dose to get the benefit. No, no. And, and I, yeah, and I think, uh, isn't that the same? We, we have to say that so much in the world of nutrition yeah. that more is not always better. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when if we're looking at um, where probiotics have been added um, to food, um, for example, are there differences in benefits if you consume a probiotic in a um, supplemented food, um, whether that's a yogurt or a fermented other fermented food, versus as a straight supplement? Is there any difference mm. in taking them in those formats? Well, yeah, this really comes down to that whole food matrix that we've sort of wrapped our heads around. You know, the dairy matrix in particular is something that's been in research and dietitians have been talking about a lot. So, you know, we understand that saturated fat, for example, is different in the food matrix of dairy compared to, to other um, high saturated fat foods. So that gives us a, 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 a clue as to what's going on here. And so the same is true with probiotics present in foods. One, you're getting the, the advantage of the other nutritional aspects of the food. Um, so if you're having a fermented food, you're getting, if it's a yogurt, you're getting protein and calcium and, and other minerals that are present that potentially have their benefit. If you're having fermented cabbage as, as kimchi or sauerkraut, you're getting the benefits of some of these prebiotics in the cabbage and other vitamins, minerals and phytochemicals that are present. Um, the same if you have a kombucha, you're, you're potentially getting the probiotic. If you've got a good kombucha that's got um, that has a probiotic strain in it, but you're also getting polyphenols in the tea. You're getting um, even the production. And we talk about the benefits of fermentation in the gut, which is producing things like short chain fatty acids and other byproducts. The same is true in the food or the drink. You're getting the products of the fermentation of the microbes in that food or drink. So there are organic acids produced. Um, there are potentially vitamins or other byproducts of that fermentation that might also be having a benefit in addition to that probiotic. And then there's some research that has been shown, I mean, yogurt is the good example here, that where the probiotics are present in the yogurt, they're potentially, that yogurt is helping the bugs to survive that transit through the gut. Um, of course, some supplements have used very clever sort of casing of the, of the microbes or, um, or, or using the particular form of the, the capsule to be able to help with that survival through the gut as well. So yes, and I think, I think the other thing actually is that for, there's a cost difference um, so usually having those foods, I mean, that's just contributing to your overall diet. And so therefore, it's a more cost effective way of getting probiotics into your diet. But often it's easier to get compliance if it's a tasty food that people enjoy. It's easier to get them having a food every day than having to purchase a special supplement that they then have to remember to take. Because at the end of the day, we've got a bit more enjoyment, haven't we, from eating that food than just popping another capsule. Yeah, I was about so, to say, it's a much more delicious way of getting your probiotics. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's got those other benefits with it. So, yeah, so I think I think for for a lot of people, it, it, it increases compliance because they're getting it as the whole food. Yeah. And yeah, and, and, and I think it's really important to think about all of those other benefits too. You know, if you've got a crappy diet and you don't have enough fiber and you don't have polyphenols, you know, you can't expect probiotics to suddenly fill a gap and give you, a, you know, fantastic gut health. It's got to be part and parcel of an overall gut-friendly, healthy diet. And, and so, you know, including things like fermented foods and drinks. And we're on the cusp of really understanding that fermented foods and drinks have been around for thousands of years um, but really only recently, and they were sort of developed as really as a means of food preservation, 
often as a means for taste, you know, because the, the particular umami tastes that are produced during cheese processing or, or the making of, of particular different foods and drinks is, were the reasons why it was done. We didn't really understand what the health benefits are until more recently. So every time I do you know, a, a webinar or I have to talk about fermented foods and drinks and I go back to the research, there's always a new paper and a new meta-analysis and new information coming up. So we're, we're really just starting to understand what those health benefits might be. And as you say, that's where a dietitian's skill set should really be is um, helping people come up with a gut healthy diet, not just a supplement or just a place to get probiotics, but it's the overall exactly. gut it's healthy. Exactly. It's the whole, yeah, it comes back to, you know, the, the phrase you used earlier, you know, the dietary pattern. So it is about that sort of the whole gamut of different things that are present and then being able to have the skills to tweak that diet for that individual person. Because yes, of course we have people who have food intolerances or allergies or problems with particular foods or, or may just need help to build up. You know, you can't go from a very low fiber diet to suddenly eating beans every day. And, and people will report to me, oh, well, I can't, no, I can't eat beans. They give mm. me, they give me terrible flatulence. And I say, well, yeah. how often do you eat beans? Well, no wonder they do. You know, yeah. why don't you start with adding a few into your foods and, and your, your gut adapts. So really helping people to understand that sort of long-term impact of the way that you eat changes and shifts your gut microbiome and and that takes some time and then it has to be consistent you know your, your gut microbiome we know will slip back to the way that mm. it was unless you keep up those new eating habits and so and i quite often hear people say oh but you can't change your gut microbiome it's kind of the way you were you know developed as a child and that's it you've got your gut microbiome for life but i've measured gut microbiomes and and looked at the changes that happen over just a few weeks period and you see changes so I think that's really important to recognize that, yes, we can't dramatically shift and change. You've got the microbes that you've got. The only new way of putting new microbes in there is through probiotics or taking them in or, you know, having a fecal transplant or something more, um, more dramatic. But that's the only way to introduce new bugs. So what you can do, though, is, is alter the amounts. You can alter what we call the evenness between different species in the gut. You can certainly explore the diversity and, and help to, to get that more diverse and even micro, um, microbiome. But you've got to keep up the changes. You've got yes. to keep it up in order to support that new gut microbiome. Yeah, and that's what I was just thinking is that it's actually nice now that some of that emerging research is about the fact that the microbiome does change once you make some dietary yeah. changes. And so it's kind of reassuring to be able to tell our clients that, no, we know that this actually ha can have an impact on your microbiome and it will have a positive impact on your microbiome and then um, down the track, your health as well. Um, so, Joanna, thank you very much for this. You've given us a really nice description of where probiotics can fit in our eating patterns around looking at strains, looking at the health outcomes um, and looking at how long they last. Um, but what would you say for dietitians that are listening today, what are your sort of really standout key messages to them to take away from our chat today? I think the standout key messages are really about under, get some understanding of the gut microbiome, understand wh what the influences are, because it's a really exciting way of motivating your clients as well. And then look at the key influences of diet. And, you know, I, I've said lifestyle as well, without we haven't got time to go into every aspect of lifestyle. But I think it's important that dietitians, although nutrition is our main gig, we have to have some understanding of, 
of how other things like stress and exercise and sleep and so on can also impact the gut microbiome. So wrap your head around that and then understand the key dietary changes that you can be looking at. And often it is diversifying someone's diet that is more beneficial rather than taking things out. So I think sort of food restrictions and eliminations and, and those sorts of things have been our tools in the past and they still have their place. But often what you're trying to do with someone particularly who has gut problems is expand the number of foods that they're eating. Wrap your head around the fact that we need a diversity of different fiber types. Understand the role of polyphenols and the broad, um, uh, how, you know, there are literally hundreds of different polyphenols too. And then get your head into the probiotic space so that you understand the difference between strains, doses, the impact of foods versus supplements, and where it might be applicable for you to e use each one or where one is going to be beneficial. And this is exciting for dietitians because it gives us some real gutsy, forgive the pun, <laughs> kind of material to talk with. And I, and I think it's really highly motivating um, for dietitians to get excited about this space because we can own this space. We are the experts in digestion and understanding what's going on in the gut. And, 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 we, and I also encourage dietitians to be part of a team where possible so that, you know, because I always say to people who have got gut problems, the first port of call is your GP, who may refer you to a gastroenterologist because obviously medical issues have to be ruled out. Um, but dietitians should be part of these teams. Um, you know, we started by talking about the number of people who've contacted me who've not been able to get help. And I wonder if part of that problem is that there are not multidisciplinary teams. So that's the last point I want to make to dietitians where you've got the opportunity to, to join a multidisciplinary team where you can work with a gastroenterologist and, and a local GP or whoever, you know, whatever, a, a hypnotherapist, you know, gut-directed hypnotherapy can be hugely advantageous. So where we can have those sort of multidisciplinary teams, it's exciting for dietitians and it gives better outcomes for the patients. And I think um, just sort of going back to some of the points you've made, it's around you don't need to be seeing clients exclusively for gut and digestive problems to be able to talk about a gut healthy diet and the role of probiotics. So no matter what sort yeah. of clients you're seeing, there's most likely a place to be talking about a diet that's healthy for their gut and where they can include probiotics. And as you said, it's really easy to include them when they're part of foods. Um, you can include them as part of your, your just standard pattern. So they don't have to exactly. be presenting with digestive issues for this to be relevant to them. No, absolutely not. And I think dietitians should be talking to everybody about, you know, even in the absence, I mean, that's what we talked about there is even in the absence of obvious gut symptoms, there can still be things going on in the gut that are causing problems elsewhere in the body. And that's really important for dietitians to, you know, I do know some dietitians have concentrated their efforts and become sort of more experts in the gut health field. But every dietitian has to understand this stuff. Um, every dietitian has to be across it because it is so interlinked with so many so many other aspects of health and well-being that we really we have to be talking about it with, with all of our, our clients and and every opportunity that you have to to talk with consumers. And it's always nice to be adding things to people's diet, and as you say, to relax restrictions um, rather yeah. than impose them. Absolutely, yeah. And at the end of the day, making diets that are delicious, that are enjoyable. And taking away some of that fear for people, you know, it's it's incredible to see people who have actually managed to expand. I mean, the the one of the the participants on the show who had such a restrictive diet, um, you know, it was so rewarding to see her just be able to expand and include, and the joy that it brought her to be able to eat a new food that she thought was off her menu forevermore. 
you know, so I think just understanding, I, I always uh, say the line, you know, food is more than the nutrients it contains. And to bring it back to that understanding that food plays a really central role in our social well-being and our in our mental health and well-being and just in our pleasure and enjoyment of life. And so, you know, for people who have got gut problems, who are having real problems with their nutrition or restricted foods and their relationship with food, it can be so uplifting to be able to help them to have that more diverse, delicious diet and bring back that joy. Yeah. So dietitians who are listening today, please make sure that you're across um, gut health, that you're listen to all our podcasts um, and webinars uh, to try and enhance your knowledge about probiotics and about all things gut health. And if there are people listening that are not dietitians who are interested in gut health, go and see a dietitian and and get some advice on getting your diet to be more of a, a gut healthy diet. So Joanna, thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure to hear you speak about these things um, with such passion and enthusiasm. Um, and we really appreciate your time and also want to thank uh, Activia for supporting today's podcast. So thank you very much. Thanks, Jean. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.